Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. We are going over the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, or also known as the Sirah, and this is Sirah episode number thirty. So, to briefly recap the previous episode in Dhul Qa'ada of six eight the sixth year of the Hijrah. The Prophet decided to uh, make Umrah. He traveled to Mecca with about 1,400 of his companions, but the Quraysh blocked them on the outskirts of Mecca. Ultimately, the Quraysh and the Muslims eventually came to a treaty, and the terms of the treaty, however, many of the companions were dismayed by them, but ultimately the treaty turned out to be good for the Muslims. The parts There are several parts of the treaty. I'm not going to go over them all again this time. You can listen to the last episode if you want to do that. But some parts of the of tre- uh, the Muslim some parts of the treaty regarding Muslim refugees were annulled and there was a discussion about why the male and female refugee portions were annulled. Once again, go back to the last episode and listen to that if you missed anything. And uh, one of the benefits, one of the major benefits of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah is that more people were able to hear about Islam without war going on all the time. And more people accepted Islam during this period of time than in all the years prior. Once again, with warfare going on between the Muslims and the, and the Quraysh, it was really difficult for them to discuss the benefits of Islam. But with things at peace, the Muslims can now talk about Islam, and people who had time to think about it almost always accepted Islam once they heard about it. So now the Prophet, he wanted to, with peace now going on in Mecca, and the Muslims being more free to, to travel through Arabia without having to worry about attacks from the Quraysh or anything like that, he wanted to expand Islam beyond the beyond the Arabian Peninsula. Islam is a global religion, it's a global faith, it is meant for all peoples, not just for the Arabs. And so he wanted to prove this by basically sending emissaries to the major leaders, the major power brokers of the region, inviting them to Islam. And so Throughout the final years of the Prophet's life, he sent out many emissaries to various different groups. However, we're only going to discuss the six that he sent in Dhul Hijjah 6AH. So you understand the time period that we're going on here. The Treaty of Hudaybiyah was made in Dhul Qa'ada, which is the 11th month of the Islamic calendar. And he sent out these emissaries, these international emissaries to go to different people around the world. Well, in the region, I should say. He did this in Dhul Hijjah, the last month of the Islamic calendar. So just so you understand, he started doing this basically within a month of the signing of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. The Prophet immediately started sending out these emissaries because peace is in here now and he started moving on it right away. So the six emissaries he sent in the um, in Dhul Hijjah 6AH, he sent out six people. They were... Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a to Cyrus, who was a patriarch of Egypt and, and uh, based in Alexandria. He then also sent out Shuja ibn Wahab to the king of the Ghassanids. The Ghassanids were Christian Arabs in what is now modern-day southern Syria. He also sent Dihya ibn Khalifa to Heraclius, who was the Caesar or the emperor of Rome. He also sent Abdullah ibn Hudafa to Khosro II, English, I believe, is pronounced Khosro II, who was a Persian emperor, and he was located in Tessifan, which is in near modern-day Baghdad in Iraq, very close to it. 
And then finally, he said, Ahmed ibn Umayya to Anajashi, the king of Ethiopia. At that time, it's called Abyssinia. We're going to go through each of these different emissaries and what happened with them and their messages one by one. First, we have Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a. He was sent to Cyrus, uh, who was in Alexandria in Egypt. Cyrus, he accepted Hatib graciously, treated him well. He did not accept Islam, but he at least treated him well. He gave Hatib four slave girls as a gift to Prophet Muhammad. And Hatib returned to Medina with this gift from the, from the patriarch of Egypt, Cyrus. And among this gift, among the slaves, was a woman named Maria. And that she became known in Islam as Maria Kobatiya. The Prophet took her as a concubine. And two years later, after this, she uh, had a son for him named Ibrahim, but Ibrahim died before he was two years old. The next emissary was Shuja ibn Wahab. He was going to the Ghassanids, who were once again Christian Arabs in Syria. So he presented the letter to the king of the Ghassanids. His name was Hashim. Uh, he was in a place uh, called Basra in southern in southern uh, Syria, what we now call southern Syria, near Damascus, about 60 miles south of Damascus, I should say. And the letter was, all these letters pretty much had similar content, though it was tailored for each person, depending on their situation, their religion, their beliefs, and so forth and so on. But this letter warned Hashim to accept Islam, and if he did so, then he could keep his kingdom. Hashim kind of scoffed at it and said, who, can, who are you? Who's going to take my kingdom away from me? And Eventually, the word, he didn't basically do anything bad to the emissary, but he basically scoffed and rebuffed the prophet's entreat, um, encouragement to come uh, and join Islam. And when the prophet heard about it, the prophet replied that his kingdom has perished. So basically, he has basically destroyed his own kingdom. And sure enough, six years later, six years later, this region of Syria, particularly Damascus, was conquered by Khalid ibn Walid under the caliphate of Abu Bakr and then Omar. And if you want to know that story, if you haven't heard it yet, it is discussed in full in the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 5. Moving on, the next emissary the Prophet sent was Abdullah ibn Hudhafa. He went to Tesifan, which is once again near modern-day Baghdad in Iraq. He presented the prophet's letter to the emperor, who was called Khosrow II. The letter, once again, warned the emperor to submit to Islam and he would be safe. Now, Khosrow, he was very indignant and insulted and basically stated that the prophet was speaking to him like a servant. So Khosrow, he tore up the letter. And when that word got back to the prophet, he said that um, the Persian Empire would be torn up as well. Khosrow II, however, he wasn't quite done yet. After he received the letter from the prophet, he then commanded that the prophet be brought to him. He wanted to basically bring the prophet to him and humiliate him and probably kill him and all that kind of stuff. And so at the time, Yemen, which is in southern Arabia, Yemen was a vassal of Persia. Persia was a humongous empire covering three continents, well, two continents, basically. But it was humongous empire. And so... Khosrow, he wrote a letter to his governor in Yemen to go to Medina and arrest the prophet and bring him back to Tesifan so he could talk to him face to face. So the governor of Yemen, he receives a letter from the emperor Khosrow, who's his boss, basically. When I say governor, it's really the king of Yemen, but whatever. The king of Yemen, he then sent two men to Medina to arrest the prophet 
and take him to Medina. I'm sorry, take him to Tessifan in Iraq, modern day Iraq. So the two men, they come to Medina and they warn the prophet that if he didn't listen to them, if he didn't come along with them, then Persia would invade Medina and destroy it. And the prophet told them, basically, you can go back to your king and you should advise him to accept Islam because uh, that empire is not going to last for very long. And all of you guys are want to become a Muslim. All of your lands will be under the, the domain of Islam eventually. So, I mean, they couldn't arrest the prophet by force. The prophet was surrounded by a bunch of companions. Companions would have come to pieces had they even tried to lay their hand on the prophet. So the two men, they went back to the king of Yemen and told him what the prophet said. And the king was like, okay, well, we'll wait and see because this guy does not sound like a normal person. And so the king was like, well, let's wait and see what actually happens. Well, of course, the prophet's prediction comes true. But first, let me give you a little bit of background here. At the time that we are discussing, the Persians had just, the Persians were in the middle, actually near the end of a long war with the Romans that had been going on for over 20 years. And this war had, the momentum of this war had swung back and forth between the Persians and the Romans. And by, when we say Romans, we mean the Eastern Romans, which is really what we call now the Byzantines, based out of Constantinople and not Rome in uh, modern day Italy. So just want you to understand those things. But anyway, I don't want to get too deep into that history. Anyway, this long 20 plus year war between the Persians and the Romans, it had dragged out between the two of them. And part of the war is actually mentioned in the Quran and Surah Turum. And that part in Surah Turum, I think that's chapter number 30. And that one, um, Allah says, Rome has been defeated. And Allah was talking about the Battle of Antioch. Now, this, by the way, took place 15 years before the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, before the Prophet sent these emissaries out. So this is 15 years before all this. So at the time of the revelation of Surah Turum, the Muslims were a small group of basically persecuted people inside of Mecca, basically. So, but even after all these years, this fighting was still going on between the Romans and the Persians. Anyway, as far as Surah Turum is concerned, that was discussing the Battle of Antioch, where the Persians defeated the Byzantines. However, as Allah mentioned in that Surah, the Romans would eventually come back and, and defeat them and capture that area back. And sure enough, Heraclius, the, who was at that time a general in the Roman army, he recaptured Antioch about 10 years later. And so now let's fast forward now to the prophet's time, to the time of the emissaries are going out. By this time, the, the momentum has swung back to the Roman side, and now Rome was winning. They were winning big. Herac Heraclius, he was no longer just the, a, a general within the Roman army. He was now the emperor of Rome. And he had recaptured a whole bunch of territory that the Romans had lost to the Persians in all these years of fighting. And he was now closing in on the Persian territory and closer and closer to the Persian capital of Tessifon. So the Romans were really got, they got to a point where the only thing separating them and the capital of Tessifon was just a, a, the river, the Euphrates river. That's the only thing that separated them from getting to the, uh, the Persian capital. But both sides have been through this long war and Heraclius really wanted to want to get peace. He didn't want to keep fighting with uh, Khosrow and the Persians forever. They had gotten back the territory that they had lost. And so he had reached out to Khosrow II 
to try to make some sort of peace terms and try to come to some sort of peace and stop all this fighting. Khosrow, however, was not willing to do that. He wanted to fight it out to the end. However, Khosrow's people, they did not want to fight out to them. They were tired of all this fighting. And so when Khosrow turned down Heraclius's peace uh, offer, Khosrow was overthrown. Remember, both empires had been devastated and exhausted by this long 20-plus year war. Khosrow's generals had urged them to to accept Heraclius' peace agreement. The man is right right across the the river from us. He can attack us as soon as he figures out a way to get across that river. He's going to attack us. Khosrow is like, no, we're going to fight this out to the end. Well, the generals, they overthrew that guy. His, and they were led by no, none other than Khosrow's own son. He led the generals in a coup. They imprisoned Khosrow, and eventually he was killed like a few days after that. And so Khosrow's out, Khosrow's out of there. We're going to come back to Persia in a moment. But now this brings us to the next emissary, Dihya ibn Khalifa. He was sent by the prophet to deliver the prophet's letter to Heraclius. And Heraclius was now in Homs in Syria. And so now with Khosrow II in prison, and all this must have happened just within a few weeks of each other, uh, maybe a few months at the most. So Heraclius is now in Syria because Khosrow had just been overthrown by his, by his own generals and his own son. And his son, who was named Kavad, he now takes the throne and he does go ahead and make peace with Heraclius. And so now... Heraclius is on sort of like a peace tour in a way. Part of the agreement of the peace treaty between the Persians and the Romans was that the Persians had to return the true cross. The true cross was said to be the actual cross that Jesus was crucified on. And this was taken out of Jerusalem when the Persians captured Jerusalem with all this back and forth fighting between the Romans and the Persians for a short period of time. The Persians had captured uh, Jerusalem during this long 20 plus year war and had carried the cross back to Baghdad. Well, that wasn't Baghdad, back to Iraq or Testifan, back to their capital. But part of the agreement of the peace treaty was that they had to return this cross to the, um, to the Romans. Now bear in mind, there have been many quote unquote true crosses over the centuries. So don't think that this was actual cross. Well, first of all, as Muslims, we know that Isa al-Islam was not crucified, first of all. Secondly, <laughs> there have been a whole bunch of true crosses throughout the, throughout the history of Christianity. Anyway, so Heraclius, he receives the prophet's entreaty. So now you understand why Heraclius was in Syria. Heraclius was on his way to Jerusalem to return the cross that had been returned, that had to given back to him by the Persians to return it back to Jerusalem. Anyway, on his way to Jerusalem, he stops in Homs in Syria, and he receives Dehya's letter uh, from the prophet. And so he reads the letter, and he just places it aside. He doesn't really do anything with it at that point in time. There are some stories that Dehya, the prophet's emissary, that Dehya and Heraclius, they did discuss Islam, and in some of these reports, it's said that Heraclius acknowledged that the prophet was speaking the truth and he believed the prophet really was a messenger of Allah, but that he just really couldn't accept Islam because he was afraid that he'd be overthrown by his generals. Bear in mind, bear in mind, Heraclius was a general who suddenly became emperor. 
You don't become emperor just like that. He had led a coup against whoever was emperor before him. And so that's how Heracles got into power himself. So his power at this time was fairly tenuous. It wasn't really on a solid ground. But anyway, Heracles, he accepts his letter and he continues on to Jerusalem. His purpose, once again, is to return the cross back to Jerusalem and also offer prayers of thanks. So they get to Jerusalem and when he's there, he has a dream. And his dream basically is showing that his empire would be conquered by people who were circumcised. So he woke up and he was really, really troubled by this dream. And so he gathered all of his generals and nobles and advisors and he started asking them about this dream. And they were saying things that, well, the only people that circumcise and practice like this are the Jews. And you control most of the Jews because most of the Jews have been lived within, most of the Jews of the world at that time lived within the boundaries of the, what was known as the Roman Empire. They said, just go ahead and kill all the Jews. Kind of, kind of bad. I know that. This is what they told him. Go ahead and just kill all the Jews. You don't have to worry about them. So they're going back and forth and still discussing this dream when Heraclius receives a messenger from Basra. So remember, the prophet had sent the companion Shuja to the Hassanid Christian Arabs in southern Syria who were clients of the Romans. They were Christians also, as you can see. And so when the Hassanid king, even though he pretty much dismissed the prophet's letter and warnings, like saying, who's going to take away my kingdom? he still sent this letter on now to Heraclius so he can review it and see it for himself. So now Heraclius, he, he, has, he received the letter from, from Dihya, the prophet's emissary in Homs, Syria. And now he receives another letter from one of his own vassals from the Hosanids in southern Syria. And then he has a strange dream about his nation being conquered by people who are, who are circumcised. And so all these things are kind of playing in his mind. And he realizes that this, the messenger who brought the letter from Basra, from the Hosanna king, he realized that um, they had brought an Arab man along with them. So I'm hoping this doesn't get too confusing. The two men who were messengers from the Hosanna king in Basra, one of them was Arab. And so one of the, mess, one of the men tells Heracles, this Arab guy has this amazing story that you just got to hear. So the Arab proceeds to go and tell Heraclius the story of the prophet's rise in power in the Arabian Peninsula. And the Arab that who's speaking now, he's Arab, but he's not from the region where the prophet is. He's from Syria. And so there's a lot of space in between them. So he knows of the stories and the prophet's uh, basically the Muslims successes and the growing power in, in Arabia is known. Word is getting out. People are hearing about it. Maybe Heraclius is the first time, his first time hearing about it, but the Hosanids, they know about it, and many other Arabs in the region know about it also. And so he tells Heraclius of the prophet's story, and once again, he, was, he knew of the events, but he was not a witness to them. And so after he finishes telling the story, the, the um, nobles who had just heard Heraclius' dream, they say, take this man's clothes off. Let's see what he is. Because now they're kind of concerned about this whole story also, you know, because they have the Heraclius' dream. They have these two emissaries. This Arab, this Arab guy is telling them about these, this, this strange upstart growing power down in the deserts of Arabia. They're like, take this man down. Let's see if he is circumcised. And they go and pull this man's pants down and strip him naked. And they see that indeed, 
he is circumcised. It's not just the Jews who practice circumcision. Arabs also practice circumcision, even before Islam. Yeah, so that's a longer story. I'm not going to get into all that, but the Arabs, per, per, the Arabs practiced circumcision, circumcision for a long time. This was basically the left, one of the leftover rights they had or left, leftover traditions from the time of Abraham and Ismail salam, from many, 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 many centuries before this, obviously. And so the Arabs still practice circumcision. Interesting thing, there, even before Islam. Anyhow, so Heraclius and the nobles, they now see this man is circumcised and they are shaken. They are a little concerned here. But Heraclius, he wants to know. He, get, he wants more information. So he orders his men to search the region and find him somebody who is from the Hejaz, who is from that region of Arabia. This Arab guy gives him a little bit of story, but he's not from the region. He's not a witness to the events of the prophets. Of the he wants somebody who's from that region and brought before him so he can get some more information and find out exactly what's going on. As it happened... Abu Sufyan, once again, the leader of the Quraysh, he happened to be in the region at the time. Once again, as you well know, as we've well established, the Quraysh were primarily merchants. They did a lot of selling and stuff, uh, basically selling between Yemen and Syria. The Quraysh acted as, act as intermediaries, and many of them got pretty wealthy off of this. Abu Sufyan, he was escorting a caravan from Mecca to Syria, Maybe to the Levant is probably more accurate. But in any case, there was a truce, a, a, a treaty, um, that's a treaty, and yeah, a treaty or a truce between the Muslims and the Quraysh at this time. But Abu Sufyan wasn't quite sure the Muslims were going to adhere to it. He uh, wasn't really sure if the Muslims were going to uh, betray, or betray them or not. After all, they several of their, of their caravans had been hit by those those Muslim refugees who were not allowed in Medina. And so if you want to know more about that, I suggest going back and listen to the previous episode. We discussed this before. So he was still kind of wary if the Muslims were going to actually stick to their treaty. But anyway, so he escorted uh, a, a caravan to, to this region. And at, the point, at that point in time, he was currently doing business in Gaza. So Heraclius was in Jerusalem. He got this all this flood of information coming in about the two emissaries and the strange dream and the Arab tells us about the prophet's doings down in the Hejaz. So he sends his people out to find somebody who is from this area and they find Abu Sufyan in Gaza and they bring him back to Heraclius's palace in Jerusalem. And now Heraclius begins to talk to Abu Sufyan and ask him about a bunch of questions about the prophet. So this is a famous story. You can find it in Bukhari. Um, and it's a famous story in Islam, but I'll go through it uh, briefly. So Heraclius asked Abu Sufyan if uh, the prophet was from noble lineage. And Abu Sufyan confirmed that, yes, he was. He then asked Abu Sufyan if, if anyone from his family had done something similar before. Abu Sufyan replied that no one had. He then asked Abu Sufyan if the prophet had any sort of authority among his people that he had lost. Abu Sufyan replied that, no, he had not. Then Heraclius asked Abu Sufyan about the prophet's followers, who, what kind of people they were. Abu Sufyan replied that they were usually the poor, the weak, the young, and the women. And then, in a way of trying to perhaps disparage the prophet and the Muslims, he said, none of the older, wise men of nobility, none of, them, none of us follow him, which wasn't necessarily true because Abu Bakr and Uthman were both older and from the nobility per se, especially Uthman, and they did follow. 
But anyway, neither here nor there. So then Heraclius asked Abu Sufyan if his followers changed their minds about Islam afterwards. Abu Sufyan replied that none of the Prophet's followers ever abandoned him, abandoned him afterwards. Then Heraclius asked Abu Sufyan about the war between the Quraysh and the Muslims and how it was going on. Abu, Abu Sufyan replied that sometimes the Quraysh won, sometimes the Muslims won. He said that they currently had a treaty, but he was uh, afraid that the Prophet might break it or might uh, betray them. This was his only chance to try to say something bad about the Prophet. He was trying to look for an opportunity to say something bad about him, but this is the only chance he got. And then Heraclius basically ignored what <laughs> the uh, Abu Sufyan's attempt to badmouth the Prophet. Heraclius ignored, ignored that, and then he went on to explain his questions. And then going one by one, he said that God chooses the best people, the people from the best lineage to be his prophets. And since Abu Sufyan confirmed that the prophet came from a noble lineage, this is one of the signs. He continued to say that the prophet was not copying something from one of his family members that came before him. So he wasn't just basically trying to create a new you know, reinvent the will from someone who had done this before. He also mentioned that the prophet, because Abu Sufyan had denied that the prophet had ever been in authority, he said this was proof that the prophet was not trying to regain some sort of position that he had lost. He also explained that the reason why he asked what kind of people were following the prophet, he replied that it is usually the weaker among society, the weak, the poor, the young, and the women. These are usually the first ones to follow a true prophet. So Abu Sufyan's attempt at trying to say the older, wise noblemen do not follow him, that kind of backfired on him. Anyway, he went on to say that when he asked about if people ever abandoned the prophet, and Abu Sufyan said no, he explained that when a person finds true faith, they never abandon it. And then he finally asked about how their their uh, battle was going on. And when he said that they had a treaty right now, he said true prophets never break their treaties. So Heraclius was pretty convinced that these were the people that he had seen in his dream. And he then followed up with uh, one final thing to Abu Sufyan, that if he ever got to meet the prophet, he'd wash his feet. He'd wash the prophet's feet as a sign of subservience to him. Now, Abu Sufyan was really kind of upset when all this ended. And he was upset that basically, and now seeing that even the emperor of Rome, basically the most powerful empire in the world at that time, but now the empire of Rome was now on the prophet's side. Not quite on the prophet's side, but still, he was touched by the events of the prophet of the prophet's life and the burgeoning, the burgeoning phenomenon of Islam. All right, so we have one more emissary to discuss. This was Ahmad ibn Umayyah, and we have mentioned this guy before, this companion. Uh, he was uh, mentioned in chapter number 21 of the Sirah. Basic recap, if you don't understand, if you don't remember, the prophet has sent a group of companions to teach a pagan tribe. The pagans betrayed the companions and sold two of them to the Quraysh. The others had been killed in the fighting. And these two that the, the Quraysh had bought off of the pagans, the Quraysh killed both of them. So the prophet sent Amr ibn Umayyah to Mecca to assassinate Abu Sufyan as retaliation. And um, Ahmed ibn Umayyah, he did infiltrate Mecca, but he did not actually get to kill Abu Sufyan, but he did manage to kill several other Quraysh before making it back to Medina. Once again, go listen to episode number 21 if you forgot the event or if you missed it. So anyway, the Prophet sends um, Ahmed ibn Umayyah 
as his emissary. And Ahmed ibn Umayyah was actually the prophet's emissary to Ethiopia and Najashi, the king of Ethiopia. He was his emissary many years earlier, about 15 years earlier, when a group of Muslims had had fled Mecca to to um, Abyssinia to uh, flee the persecution in Mecca. They went to Abyssinia and the Christian king at that time, Anajashi, that's the title, that's not his real name. Uh, he had accepted the Muslims and gave them uh, refuge in his land. Ahmed ibn Umayyah was, his, was the prophet's emissary at that time as well. So Ahmed ibn Umayyah already had a relationship with Anajashi. So um, Ahmed ibn Umayyah, he presents the letter to Anajashi. Anajashi um, the letter basically invites Anajashi to Islam, and Anajashi he replies with confirming he he replies to the Prophet's letter confirming that he had accepted Islam, that he believed the Prophet was the actual messenger. Now, I don't want to get too deep into this. Obviously, Anajashi never had time to pray. He never had time to learn how to pray. Well, at least we don't have any evidence that he did. But he acknowledged that the Prophet was the Prophet, and that he believed. The way the prophet, the way the prophet explained Isa alayhi salam from the Muslim perspective, he accepted he accept, he accepted that that was exactly the way Isa was or Jesus was. So, all we can really say is that Anajashi he accepted Islam, and we hope and pray that Allah accepts him, accepts his Islam and forgives him for the mistakes that he made. We just leave it at that. Anyway, the letter um, Anajashi he replied back to the letter. I'm sorry, let me go back a little bit. The letter had a few other things in it. The letter, in, in, in addition to inviting Anajashi to accept Islam, the letter, the letter also inquired about the condition of Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, who was one of the companions who had left Mecca many years earlier to uh, stay in Abyssinia, and about the other Muslims there. So during this period of time, of course, some of the Muslims had stayed in Abyssinia, some of them had returned to Mecca, some of them had gone on to join the Prophet in Medina, Uthman being one of them, but there are several others. But now that the Muslims were settled in Medina, now that there was peace between the Muslims and the Quraysh, the Prophet was basically saying in this letter, it's time for my companions to return home and come back to Medina and come back and join me in Medina. And so the letter in addition to, to inviting the companions to return back to Medina, the letter also proposed marriage to one of the female companions in Abyssinia. In refuge, her name was Um Habiba. And so Anajashi wrote back a letter to the Prophet, basically stating that his companions were fine, that he accepted Islam, he believed the Prophet. And Anajashi also went on to perform the marriage between Um Habiba and the Prophet. So a little bit about Um Habiba real quick. Um Habiba was the daughter of Abu Sufyan and the sister of Muawiyah. Her real first name was Ramla, but everyone called her by her kunya, Um Habiba. Before all this, she was married to a, a man named Obedullah ibn Jash. Obedullah ibn Jash was the brother of Zainab bint Jash, who was another of the Prophet's wives. And we talked about Zainab bint Josh in episode, I forget the episode, but season one of the Islamic History Podcast. And that should be coming out soon if you haven't heard it yet. Anyway, I'm going to, get, I'm going to go down a deep road if I go there. Anyway, Um Habiba was married to Obedullah bint Josh, who was the brother of Zainab bint Josh, who was one of the prophet's wives. 
Anyway, Um Habiba and her husband Obedullah ibn Josh, they had traveled to Abyssinia with Ja'far to once again escape the persecution from the Quraysh in Mecca. However, while they were in Abyssinia, Obedullah left Islam. He converted to Christianity and Um Habiba had to divorce him, which she did. And so now that she was single, a prophet asked for Anajashi to marry them. And Anajashi, he performed the marriage for the prophet in absentia. And he gave Um Habiba 400 gold dinars as her wedding gift or as her dowry for the prophet. So he was basically giving her this gift on behalf of the prophet. I don't believe the prophet asked for it. I think um, Anajashi was just doing this out of the kindness of his heart. But anyway, so now the prophet was married to Um Habiba, though they were separated by hundreds of miles. But not long after the letter, Um Habiba and the rest of the refugees in Abyssinia, they board a boat and they head back for Medina. And so that was the end. That's the last emissary. We, still, we went through all six stories. That was the last emissary that the prophet sent in this period of time. Just want to go back and discuss the prophet's prediction about Persia being torn up. We mentioned how the prophet's emissary to Persia, he presented a, a letter to Khosrow II, who was the emperor of Persia at the time. Khosrow ripped it up, and then he went and sent guys out to try to arrest the prophet. When the prophet heard about that, he mentioned and predicted that Khosrow's empire would be torn up likewise. And so, we already mentioned how not long after the prophet's emissary came to Khosrow, Khosrow was overthrown, imprisoned, and killed by his son and a group of generals who wanted to make peace with the Romans. This son who overthrew Khosrow, his name was Kavad. Kavad did go ahead and make peace with Heracles. Now, now pay attention now, because this is complicated. I just want to discuss how the prophet's uh, prediction came true. It's pretty complicated, real quick. Anyway, so Kavad, with his generals, overthrows Khosrow, imprisons him, and kills him. Kavad is now emperor. Kavad dies from plague six months later. When he dies, his seven-year-old son succeeds him. I'm not going to get into all these names. It's hard enough keeping track of just what happened. So a seven-year-old son succeeds Kavad as the emperor of Rome. Two years later, I guess he's about nine years old now, a Persian general overthrows the young nine-year-old emperor and kills him. And now this Persian general takes control. The general, however, he's killed 40 days later and Khosrow's daughter is now made the empress. And now she's in charge of Rome. But then she is deposed a year later and replaced by the son of the general that she had overthrown. So there's basically a civil war going on now between the royal family and a faction of generals within the, the Persian army. The general's son overthrows her, and he doesn't kill her, but he overthrows her, and he takes over the throne. But he's never recognized by the nobility of Persia, and eventually he is deposed and killed. And then when he is tossed out, another one of Khosrow's daughter, she's placed back on the throne and made empress again. 
But then she is killed less than a year later by a different general. And this general, after killing her, he puts her sister back on the throne. The one who had been overthrown by the general's son before. I know it gets, it gets complicated. I know. Anyway, so now this daughter is back on the throne after the general overthrew her sister and she's back on the throne. But then she's assassinated not too long after that by yet a different general who kills her. And then they put another one of Khosrow's sons named Yezdegerd. He's made the emperor. And after all this mess is going on, there's a little bit of stability coming into, into Persia. After all this mess, Yezdegerd becomes the emperor of Rome. And then a year later, the Muslims come, led by Khalid ibn Walid. And that's just it. That's it for the Persian Empire. Yezdegerd is the last Persian emperor. And the empire is wiped out. It becomes a part of the Muslim Caliphate. You want to know about that in detail? Go listen to season two of the Islamic History Podcast. I go through all those events in pretty good detail. So that's it for now. Alhamdulillah, that's it for the emissaries that the Prophet sent. I believe in the next episode, we're going to discuss the Battle of Khaybar, inshallah. So until then, until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.